Well, good morning. I trust that it's not only the children who can shout Hosanna, that today, young or old, we in our spirits are shouting Hosanna, that Jesus is our Savior, that he has saved us from our sins, and so today we are reminded, Palm Sunday, we shout out Hosanna. And we, can, and we can say Hosanna not in the small picture, the small understanding, the way the people did on the first Palm Sunday. We can shout Hosanna knowing the full picture. That Jesus was not only a physical savior, a king who is coming to save people from the Romans, he came to save us from our sins. And he came to give us salvation for all eternity. So I, I pray that in your spirits, and as we've been singing, we've been shouting Hosanna. And one of the great pictures uh, that I really enjoyed this service is of the children shouting Hosanna and them coming forward. And it was just so perfect, Graham, reading the, the scripture passage this morning. And I think he went downstairs already, but he did such a great job. So good job, Graham, if you can hear me. That was excellent. I know that God loves to hear the children singing his praises. And uh, I think it should, it should do something for us as well. Let's uh, now bow as we enter God's word together. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this Sunday. That, Lord, we are entering into a very special season of the year. As we are heading towards next Sunday, which is Easter. Lord, we recognize again that there is great benefit for us in journeying towards Easter in contemplation of what it cost you to achieve victory. And that, God, again, as we journey towards Good Friday and the cross, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts again a deep appreciation and an even greater wonder and awe at what you, Lord Jesus, endured for our sake. That our sin was something you took upon yourself. That the pressure and the weight of it was something you bore upon your own shoulders so that we could be forgiven so that the punishment that we deserved for our own sin would be placed upon you, and that you could remove it from us as far as the east is from the west. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, as we consider you once again, that, Lord Jesus, would we see you for who you truly are and worship you as our Savior and as our Lord. Bless this word, I pray. Speak through me, your servant, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking you a very simple question. Who here likes to bowl? <laughs> Anyone? Couple of hands. Who here sort of doesn't mind bowling? A few people? Okay, more hands are going up. Yeah, you know, I'm sort of in that category. Now, who here has ever bowled a perfect game? <laughs> no. Oh, a hand's gone up in the back. With or without bumper pads? <laughs> Now, I'm not surprised if no one has ever bowled a perfect game here because I, I don't know what the odds are for five-pin bowling, which is what we're most accustomed to, but in 10-pin bowling, the odds of bowling the perfect score of 300 is 225,000 to one. Is that all you ask? So basically what that breaks down to is for the average bowler, you would need to bowl 225,000 games of 10-pin bowling to have a realistic chance of bowling the perfect score of 300. Now, one such bowler who had pursued this elusive goal for years, he was what you would call not a professional bowler, but in his own mind, he was a professional bowler, a serious amateur. And he'd been pursuing this goal 
for many years. He'd come up just short many, many times, you know, throwing 10 strikes, but then, you know, missing out in the last frame. And so finally, here he was, after years of bowling, one strike away from his elusive goal. He had thrown 11 consecutive strikes. In the game of 10-pin bowling, it is 12 consecutive strikes to throw the perfect score of 300. And so there he stood, just within his grasp, a one throw away. And as all eyes in the bowling alley had turned towards him, capturing this moment, would he achieve this lifelong goal, the man just stood there, ball in hand, at the line, he froze. Staring down the lane, the moment was too much for him. He could not move forward, he could not throw the last ball. And finally, to everyone's shock, he just turned around, silently packed up his shoes and his ball, walked out of the bowling alley, and he never set foot inside a bowling alley ever again. That's what is often referred to as cracking under the pressure. The strain was simply too much for him. And so rather than facing the possibility of a crushing disappointment by not throwing that last strike, he simply walked away and thereby forfeit the possibility of victory. Pressure does funny things to people, doesn't it? We've all faced pressure at some point in our lives or another. And pressure comes in so many different shapes and sizes, so many different forms. Whether in sports, you know, I've faced different pressure situations in sports. You know, me being a professional in my own mind, but nothing more than an overly serious amateur. You know, we face pressure in education, to get good grades, to excel, to get a degree, to have a successful career, to want to do well and excel and, and move up the ladder in our career. We face pressure of those kinds. We also face pressure within our families to raise our families right, to please our parents, to, to do things within our family that's going to keep relationships strong. There are all sorts of different types of pressures all around us. There is, however, another type of pressure that most of us here today have little or no concept of. And that's the pressure of facing prolonged physical and psychological torture. Now, the ancient Romans had perfected the aspects of torture into the perfect form of crucifixion. One that was terrifyingly simple, yet terrifyingly effective in what it was intended to do. For you see, crucifixion was not just a means of putting someone to death. There was far more quick and efficient ways of killing someone. No, crucifixion was designed to torture the individual to the utmost, not only physically, but psychologically, knowing that your death is going to be as long and prolonged and agonizing as is almost humanly possible. It also had a second message, those who are watching. That this crucifixion stood as an act of power for the Roman Empire. Toe the line, fall under the Roman rule, or this might happen to you. And so crucifixion was terrifyingly effective in so many different ways. And so... Here we stand today, looking at three crosses on the stage before us. We notice them, we know it's the Easter season, so the cross becomes something that we're accustomed to seeing. But I would suggest to you that if we were to transport someone from 2,000 years ago from the Middle East to here today, their jaws would drop. 
They would be shocked to see these three crosses on our stage. They would say, what is an execution of the most barbaric nature doing in a place of worship? Why are there three crosses upon a stage where you are saying you are worshiping God? This is a symbol of all that is wrong with the world, of Roman cruelty. And yet here they stand before us today, symbolizing something entirely different. But as we consider the fact that Jesus transformed what the cross means today, we should not diminish what he endured in order to transform it from a symbol of defeat to a symbol of triumph. In the time where this was still used by the Romans, it was not uncommon for defeated soldiers to simply crack under the pressure and to actually kill themselves rather than risk being captured by the Romans and face the, pro- the prospect of being executed by death upon a cross. But now consider that when even the bravest of men, the hardest of soldiers, will be running away or even taking their own lives rather than facing crucifixion, Jesus rode towards Jerusalem. I want you to consider for a moment what kind of pressure Jesus must have experienced as he rode towards Jerusalem. As he came over the Mount of Olives that day, looking before him across the Kidron Valley, and there stood Jerusalem, the Temple Mount dominating the landscape, knowing that it was here. The people for whom he was about to to give his life for, the ones who God had chosen as his own special possession, they would be the ones who would say, crucify him. And that even as he comes down the Mount of Olives, and all of the pilgrims who are on their way for the Passover feast are along the roadside shouting, Hosanna, and waving their palm branches, he knows that soon those cries of enthusiasm are going to be turned to chants for blood in a very short period of time. What kind of pressure was Jesus under in that moment, knowing that not only was he facing torture, but that he was facing the prospect of taking the entirety of all of the world's sin upon himself, and in that moment, his father would have to turn his face away from him, and that intimacy that had been there for all of eternity would be severed for the first time ever. What kind of pressure did Jesus face, knowing that this is what lie ahead of him? And so, today, before we are going to journey further ahead with Jesus towards the cross, I want to take you back in time to Jesus' boyhood growing up in the village of Nazareth. Now, as we go back in time and we consider that, yes, Jesus was one time a boy. In fact, we're given a snapshot of that journey, the pilgrimage of the family going up when Jesus was a 12-year-old boy to go worship at the temple. And so we're reminded that even though we focus on Jesus, the man, the, the rabbi, the teacher, the Messiah, he spent the majority of his life on earth as just a regular kid, a boy, a young man who was apprenticing under his father to become a carpenter, and then was a carpenter. He would have built tables, chairs, all sorts of furniture. People knew him as such. He was Joseph's son, the carpenter. If you want good furniture, go to him. He's the one who can hook you up with solid, solid furniture, and he's going to give you a good price. You know he's going to be fair. This is the Jesus who I want you to think about for just a moment. Now, I've got a few pictures that I want to show you this morning quite quickly. 
from our trip. And so I would ask Michael, just cue those up for us now. Now, Nazareth today, of course, is quite different from the Nazareth that Jesus grew up in. And so once that first picture comes up, we'll get an idea of what we're talking about here. Now, this, I will have to say, is a picture of a picture. So this is taken from the side of the tour bus of a snapshot of Nazareth as we're going by. And there in the center of it, right there, you can just make out the dome of a massive church that was constructed that's called the Church of the Annunciation. And so the Church of the Annunciation is built over the site that was believed to be the home of Mary when the angel Gabriel descended to her and told her that she would be with child. And so in the bottom of this great church, there's this little cave which is believed to be Mary's home. And so it was quite the thing to enter this massive cathedral and there in the center of it find this humble little dwelling which was believed to be the place that Mary was visited. Now, for myself, one of the challenges of this trip was picturing the events and things that were said to have occurred on these locations while being inside a massive cathedral. Because one of the things that the Catholic Church and and different Greek Orthodox churches and different denominations really like to do is they like to peg the exact location where Jesus was said to have done a miracle and then build a massive church on top of it. And then beyond that, they'll say, for example, this rock is where Jesus put down the loaves and fishes before doing the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And so then with this rock jutting out right at the center of the altar, they'll build an altar over the top of it, and people can pass by and touch the rock, as though to somehow receive some sort of a blessing. And so for myself, being in these churches and this sort of a feeling wasn't doing a lot for me um, in in an inward sort of a way. And so these were some of the things we had to sort of wrap our heads around. Now the next picture, I'll see if I can get it to come up here. There we go. There's a picture of the church. As you can see, uh, it's huge. It's massive. It completely dominates the landscape of Nazareth. However, here is what I envision Nazareth to look like. Isn't it what you envision Nazareth to look like? The amazing thing is that in 2005, there was a group of Christians who got together and said, We don't feel connected to Jesus in an intimate way by entering these massive cathedrals. We want to recreate something that feels real to the time of Christ. And so, actually, only less than a kilometer away from the massive church you just saw, there was this empty piece of ground, just sitting there completely empty and undeveloped. They purchased it, and they set about building what they call Nazareth Village, recreating a place and a space, what Nazareth would have looked like at the time of Christ. And so here we see a nice green hillside, a terrace, there's a donkey grazing in the background. You can see people who are actually dressed up in period garments to actually live the life of villagers at the time of Christ. They have a synagogue, they have uh, an olive press, they have a workshop using all of the tools that they would have used at Jesus' time. And so for myself, this was really that first feeling of being connected to Jesus' boyhood. That this was the exact ground that Jesus would have passed over many times, and it looks very much as it would have in the time of Christ. 
Here you can see some of the, the children who are actually dressed up in period garment. And they're not just standing around. They're actually going about the village living life as though it were the time of Christ. So they're doing real things. They're working in the, the mill. There was another lady at a, at a loom making fabrics and making sandals exactly the same way they would have at the time of Christ. A carpenter using tools that Jesus would have used to make furniture. It was really quite an incredible experience. We even... The next picture here, there's even a shepherd who uh, we got to have a picture with and Leanne cozied up with there. You can see he's quite a good-looking fella. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite certain, I forget his name now, I forget what his name was. I don't know if, if uh, Matt or Heidi, if you remember, or Heidi, if you remember what his name was, but uh, I'm quite certain that he was old enough to be able to give first-hand account of what Jesus was like as a boy, so... <laughs> It was quite an amazing experience to be able to, to really visualize it in a real way and to be on ground that looked exactly as it would have when Jesus ran over it. And, and as you look at the terraces there and the pathways, you can just envision Jesus as a boy many times passing over this exact ground. And in fact, in the excavation process, they uncovered a large wine press, which they dated to be from an ancient time, from the time of Christ, that very likely... Jesus, if he had not worked in it himself, would have passed by many times. And our guide informed us that at the time of the harvesting of the grapes, it was very common to bring children from the village to come and help press the grapes. And so the children would be in bare feet pressing the the grapes in this wine press. And so it was quite profound to be able to sit there in front of the wine press and stand on it and envision that very likely Jesus' feet could have trod on that exact ground It was a very, very special moment. And this was only day two of the trip, but uh, it really set the tone for us. Now, one of the things we learned in our time in Nazareth Village, the next picture here, there's me standing in front of an olive tree. Now, one of the things that I learned on on this trip that I'd never really caught the significance of before is how important the olive tree is to the nation of Israel. It is one of their primary uh, fruits, primary exports, and especially during the time of Christ, the olive tree symbolized all that was right and prosperous about the nation. Now, if there was a good olive crop, that symbolized God's blessing. God was happy with them. And if there was a poor olive, olive crop that year and not very much oil coming out of the press, that symbolized God's displeasure with the people. And so this was very much linked And to this very day, they think very much along those same lines. And so the olive tree is something very important to the nation of Israel. Now, the olive was used, and still to this day, is used for a wide variety of things. They would use it for medicine. They would use it for the symbolic anointing of priests and kings. They would use it for burning as fuel in lanterns. They would use it for making cosmetics and, of course, it would be used for its primary purpose as food or as dressing on food. And so here we learned about the process of how they make olive oil. Now this next picture here is the picture of an ancient olive press. Now it's a little bit hard to make out just from the picture, but on this end down here on the bottom, this is the press. On the back side is a large beam coming across here with brackets on top, with ropes coming down with these massive stones that would be affixed to the ropes and then pulled down on top of the olives, which would be placed right here in a little basket. Now, 
the olives would be pressed three separate times. The first press, they would have one rock on it, which would just press the olives enough that the first oil would squeeze out. Now, the first press of oil was considered the purest, the best oil, and you would know that today as virgin. That's right. Or even extra virgin. So extra virgin olive oil comes from the first press. It was considered the purest, the best quality. But you know what? The people didn't get to keep it. Why not? Because it was the first fruits. The first fruits of the harvest was always given back to God. And so the first press, the best oil, was given to the temple for the use by the high priests. And so that was the first press. The best would go to God. The second press, a second stone would be affixed, increasing the pressure. The second press was what was used for everyday, ordinary, common usage of all of the things I just described. And then the third press, the third rock would be attached to it, maximizing the pressure, literally crushing these olives to a pulp, getting every last drop of oil out of them. This was considered the, the least, uh, the, the poorest quality oil. And this was what was usually used only for burning as fuel in the lanterns. And so they would fill the lanterns, have a wick put in it, and this is what they would use to light their homes. And so here we see a picture beginning to emerge. Three presses, three different uses for the olive oil. I want to show you today something that we learned in this time and along the journey of an incredible parallel between the olive press and our Lord Jesus. The first thing I want to draw to your attention is a passage from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 3 that Jesus is described as an olive tree. Isaiah 11 verse 3 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now in this picture, this was the oldest olive tree in that entire garden. They estimated it to be between four and 500 years old. That's pretty old, isn't it? But guess what? This olive tree was still fruitful. There's an object lesson in that all by itself, I think. But the other neat thing about this olive tree, it's hard to make out in this picture, but there's sprouts shooting up from the side of the stump. A shoot will, a sprout will shoot up from the stump of Jesse. That even once the ancient olive tree has, has yielded up its usefulness and it's beyond being able to bear fruit, it is not yet dead because something else will grow up in its place and it will continue to bear fruit. And this was a messianic prophecy referring to Jesus, comparing him to the shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, an olive shoot that will one day grow up to bear fruit. The second thing we learn from the olive tree is that just as the olive is crushed, Jesus too was crushed. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 says this, But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Verse 10 then says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Now, the Hebrew word that is used here for crush is the word daka. Daka is the same word that is used for the crushing of olives. So here Isaiah is saying that the Lord is crushed for us. And he's drawing to mind the picture of an olive being crushed. And so just like the olive that is crushed under pressure 
in order to produce its gift of oil. Jesus was also crushed under the pressure of our sin in order to produce the gift of salvation. Every last drop of his life-giving blood was squeezed from him so that we could be healed. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Incredible, isn't it? The parallels that are beginning to emerge. But the lesson of the olive doesn't end there. The third thing is the threefold lesson of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. Third point, third lesson, three points. I want you to turn there with me this morning. Mark chapter 14 and beginning at verse 32. Now here we are jumping ahead in time from Jesus' boyhood in Nazareth to the night of Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now to get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus leaves the upper room, which is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just outside or on the edge of the city wall of that time. He crosses down a path through the Kidron Valley and to the base of the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And there he enters one of his favorite places where he likes to get away and to pray alone. Now here is a picture of the modern-day Garden of Gethsemane. You'll notice the tree that is directly in the center of this photo. Does anyone want to take a guess at what kind of a tree that is? Anyone? Olive tree, very good. You guys have been paying attention. It's a beautiful setting. The picture doesn't do it justice. It was absolutely peaceful, serene. Everything about it just felt real. And we were privileged to be able to go into what is called the inner garden. Not all of the tour groups were allowed to go there because you had to have special permission and we were allowed to go into it alone. None of the other tourists were there. And we actually had a half hour to just sit, read the scripture of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, and just sit and meditate on what Jesus experienced there. It was a powerful, profound moment. And I want to read for you, beginning in verse 32, that passage that describes what happens in this exact setting. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He then took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. There's a whole lot of things we can draw out from this simple passage. The first thing I want you to take note of is that the garden, as we've already pointed out, is an olive grove named Gethsemane. Now, while visiting there, our Israeli tour guide gave us a quick lesson in Hebrew, as he liked to do from time to time. And he told us that Gethsemane, that word that we've used, we've anglicized it to use in our English language, Gethsemane is actually a bad mispronunciation of two Hebrew words, Gat and Shmanim. Gat Shmanim. Gethsemane. Gat Shmanim. It took me a long time to get the pronunciation right. You try it with me. Gat Shmanim. Okay, one more time. Ready? Gat Shmanim. Guess what Gat means? Olive. Shmanim means press. Olive, 
press, Gethsemane, the olive press, Jesus, the olive tree, the olive who was crushed, pressed in a place that was called the olive press. Incredible. We just can't make this stuff up. This is God's signature on everything from beginning to end. These sort of things were just revelation after revelation while we were in Israel. And just mind-blowing. The intricate details of God and his plan of salvation. That's the first thing we draw out of this passage. The second is I want you to take note of how Jesus described the internal pressure he is under knowing that the cross is close at hand. Listen to what he says. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. That's serious. We just read over these words so quickly. Imagine the anguish that Jesus has in his soul to say words like that. Imagine a friend coming to you late in the evening, coming to your door and saying, I've got to talk, and says to you, my soul is crushed to the point of death. You'd be afraid they're about to take their own life. This is a dark, dark place that Jesus is in. My soul is crushed. The word that we have translated into English to to use this word crushed is actually translated from a Hebrew phrase, which if we were to directly translate it means terror on every side. Terror on every side. Essentially, Jesus' soul felt the terror of evil, of sin, of Satan, and hell itself coming at him from every direction to the point that he felt he would die. The full weight of it all is coming at him from all sides. Terror on every side is what his soul is experiencing. The parallel account in Luke chapter 22 describes him as being so desperate and so anguished in his prayer that his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And modern science today has determined that when people are under extreme extreme stress or pressure, the capillaries under the skin can actually rupture and you can literally sweat out blood under extreme pressure, under extreme and intense anguish. And so it is very possible that literally Jesus' sweat had blood within it under such intense pressure in his prayers to God in that moment. What kind of agony did Jesus experience in those moments of prayer. We can only picture him on the ground, pleading with his dad, pleading, is there any other way, Father? Any other way but this? Show it to me. Let this cup pass from me. The pressure of Gethsemane, the olive press. We will never know nor be able to personally experience the depth of agony that Jesus endured in those moments. But I pray that considering it causes us to simply kneel in silent awe and adoration that he did it for us. Thirdly, take note that Jesus goes further into the garden to pray alone and returns back to his disciples, not one time, not two times, but three times. Three times it says Jesus went in. Three times he returned and said, stay awake, pray with me, don't fall into temptation. 
Three times he goes back to his agony in prayer. Now, let me ask you a couple more questions. How many times was the olive pressed? Three times. Good. Paying attention. Let me ask you one more question. What were the different presses used for? Before you answer that, let me give you the answer for the first press. The first press was the first fruits to be given to the temple to be used by the high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, describes Jesus as our high priest. Listen to this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. The first press goes to the high priest. Jesus is our high priest. And this first press reminds us that he is our high priest today, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. The second press, what was it used for? Common, everyday sort of use, right? This was what everyone was allowed to use for themselves. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this about Jesus. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood... The Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil. The ordinary press, the second press, reminds us that Jesus, too, was ordinary in his human flesh. He was a man just like us. He felt the pressure of temptation and sin in every single way, but he did not give in to it. He overcame, and he was found without blemish, and without sin. Finally, the third press. What was it used for? For fuel to light the lanterns, for light. The third press had the most pressure put upon it. The three rocks were affixed to the third press, thereby crushing the olive completely, getting every last drop. Now this next slide I'm going to show you is a picture of a replica, a life-size replica of the golden menorah. This was to be lit day and night in the temple. This golden menorah is sitting today in the old city of Jerusalem. And the Jews there today are still preparing and waiting for the day that temple sacrifice and worship will be restored. And this is one of their preparations. And so here, this menorah was the backdrop in the temple for Jesus' statement in John chapter 8, verse 12. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to what Jesus says. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What kind of oil kept these lanterns lit? Olive oil. You've been paying attention. Good, you're tracking. Question two, which press did the lantern oil come from? The third press. Now listen to this. Just as the third press was used to burn in the lamp and give light to the room, Jesus is the thrice-pressed light of the world, so that whoever follows him will never again walk in darkness, will never again have to grope their way through life alone, in sin and self and death. But with Jesus, we'll have the light of life that can burn and will burn for all of eternity. 
I can't make this stuff up, my friends. How incredible, how amazing, how beautiful is the perfect plan of God. No detail for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls was too small. No cost was too high. The plan was perfect and the Son was obedient. For at the most crucial moment in all of history, with everything hanging in the balance, Jesus did not turn tail and run. Jesus did not buckle under the pressure. Instead, he cried out, Father, everything is possible for you. If it is possible, take this cup from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And with those words, his course was set towards the cross. Calvary would be realized in its full and bloody extent. Jesus would become the perfect Lamb of God. His blood would be shed every last drop. His life would be given so that every last speck of our sin could be removed, so that we could be completely and utterly forgiven. What a God. What a Savior. Is He your Savior? He is a Savior worth following, my friends. And if He's not your Savior today, He can be. All you have to do is do what He said. Believe in me, and you can have the light of life. And so the invitation is simple. Will you believe in Jesus? Make him your Savior. He's done everything. All you have to do is receive him. Let's pray. Father God, we are simply in awe of you and your plan of salvation. The further we look into it, the more intricate it becomes. Lord, that no detail was too small. That even the olive tree and the pressing of the olive has a parallel and a lesson for us in how you, Lord Jesus, were pressed for us. And how you were crushed so that we could be healed. And that by your blood, we could be forgiven. That our sins could be covered over as white as snow, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to go to the cross for us. Help us, Lord, to enter this week in holy awe and reverence of what you've done for us. And follow you and live our lives completely and utterly for you until you return or call us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.